Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Again, Shabbat Shalom. Bear with me as I fight this laryngitis. Lord, just give me the, the voice to speak your words. Amen. Um, are we ready for this? Okay, today, as you know, is the first day of Pesach. I uh, hope you all had a great Seder in your homes last night. I know we did. And I hope you all be joining us this coming Monday for our, our congregational Seder at, at, at 5 p.m. this coming Monday. As you all know, Yeshua was crucified and died on Pesach, thus fulfilling the appointed time, fulfilling the symbolism of the feast as our Passover lamb. Uh, who was, when the Passover lamb was slain, uh, the blood was applied to the Israelites' homes in Egypt, thus delivering them from death. Uh, in the same way, Yeshua is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen. So today, in honor of Passover, I want us to look at that event, at the crucifixion. So turn with me to Matthew 27, beginning in verse 45. Matthew 27, 45 to 56. From noon until 3 p.m., darkness descended over the face of the land. About 3 p.m., Yeshua cries out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard him, they said, he's calling for Eliyahu, Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran, got a sponge, uh, filled it with, with, with uh, red wine vinegar, put it on a stick, offered it up to Yeshua to drink. But the rest of the crowd said, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to, to save him. And then Yeshua cried again with a loud voice. And gave up his spirit. Or King James gave up the ghost. (laughs) At that moment, the curtain in the temple was rent in two. From top to bottom. The earth shook. The rocks split. The tombs were opened. And bodies of many holy ones, Zedekim, the saints who had died, were raised to life. They came out of their tombs after Yeshua's resurrection. And went into the holy city, Yerushalayim. And appeared to many people. Now when the centurion and those with who were standing guarding with him, uh, guarding Yeshua, they saw the earthquake, and all that had happened, they were terrified, and exclaimed, Truly this was the Son of God. Many of the women who had followed Yeshua from Galilee, from the Galil, and had given him support, were also there, watching from a distance. Among them were, were Mary Magdalene, uh, Miriam the mother of Yaakov and Yosef, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. I want us to focus today just on one verse, one verse, Matthew 27, 46. At the ninth hour, 3 p.m., Yeshua shouted with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, in Aramaic, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I want us to especially look at three things, the three themes uh, in this one verse. We'll put it on the overhead. Number one, the cry. Number two, the word my. And number three, the word why. Now, we'll put that over overhead again. The cry points to the fact of Yeshua's death. The word my points to the accomplishment of his death. And the word why points to the reason for his death. So first notice that he died at the ninth hour, 3 p.m. on Pesach, the exact day and the exact time that the last of the Passover lambs were slaughtered in the temple. In fact, uh, from the cross, Yeshua, he looked down, he could see the, the temple. He fulfills the Passover imagery of the blood of the lamb and the doorposts uh, covering us, saving us from the angel of death. 
Indeed, when Yochanan Hamabil, John the, the Immerser, first saw Yeshua, he proclaimed in John 129, one of our memory verses, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And indeed, when the, when the Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, finished applying the blood of, on the altar in the temple of the last Passover lamb at the ninth hour at 3 p.m., the high priest declared, it is finished. And as we're about to see uh, on the cross, on the tree, Yeshua quotes from verse 1 of Psalm 22, a Messianic psalm. And this Psalm 22 ends with the words, it is done. It is finished. He has done it. Uh, echoing the cry of the high priest at the temple, it is finished. Which can also be translated, paid in full. Now let's first look at Yeshua's cry on the cross. The text says at 3 p.m. he cried out with a loud voice. It's kind of a weak translation. The actual Greek uh, could really be translated, he screamed or he shrieked. Perhaps the translators were a bit too timid to, to use that translation. And any first-time reader reading this might feel, well, Yeshua, has he cracked? You know, he's saying to God, you've abandoned me. And it sounds like he's saying, God, you failed me. So on the surface, at least, it seems he seems to be cracking, uh, to be giving up. He seems to be saying, God, you have failed me. And it's interesting that even the, the most liberal, skeptical scholars who don't believe in the Bible, they nonetheless, they all say this must have happened. Because no one who's trying to invent Yeshua faith w- would make this up and put this in here. If you were trying to create and promote a new religion, no one would write an account where the founder of that religion is seen as failing and giving up in despair and admitting that God has abandoned him. No one would put that in there unless it actually happened. Now we know uh, that what really happened is not at all how it looks on the surface. Yeshua is not cracking. Uh, And we'll get to that in a minute. But the fact remains, this is proof against this being some kind of fictional account. No one would make up a story and depict their hero in this way. The only explanation is that it's not a fictional account, but a factual one. Uh, And even the skeptics and, and the liberal scholars admit this. Moreover, even though the book of Matthew and the parallel accounts in the other Gospels are written in Greek, notice this cry is not in Greek. This cry is written in Aramaic. Uh, It's a first-hand account indicating eyewitness memory. The gospel writers are recording Yeshua's actual words in his actual language because they could never forget that cry. We must never forget that cry. So number one, to the overhead, the cry points to the fact of his death. Number two, the word why points to the reason uh, for his death. Why did God the Father forsake Yeshua, uh, his son? And the beginning of the answer is to realize that what Yeshua is saying here is not some random cry, but rather he's actually quoting. He's quoting verse 1 of Psalm 22. And of course, in Jewish tradition, because the people back then knew the scriptures by heart, to quote the first verse was a shorthand way of quoting an entire passage. So in this case, quoting all of Psalm 22, which, as we'll see, is the crucifixion psalm. Remember the famous uh, Mel Gibson movie, The the Passion of the Christ? We hear in this cry from the cross, we have the ultimate revelation 
of the passion of Yeshua. Because originally the word passion in Latin means suffering. Now, of course, that's not how we use the word passion today, but that's its original meaning. Today, passion means romance, heavy breathing, a perfume by Calvin Klein, <laughs> love. But originally, the word passion meant suffering. Uh, and we put this in the overhead. The Bible is re- revealing to us that deep love always involves deep suffering. Yeshua went, underwent infinite suffering out of infinite love. I'm going to put this on the overhead as well. Uh, the the, the uh, Yeshua's quote here from Psalm 22 shows us both. It reveals to us both the infinity of his suffering and the infinity of his love for you. And this also takes us to the word my. Uh, in, in my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When Yeshua screams from the tree, from the execution stake, he doesn't say, notice this, he doesn't say, my head, my head or my hands, my hands, or my feet, my feet. He's not talking about his physical suffering. You know, he's been beaten, flogged, flesh stripped off his back. You could could see his bones. Uh, Thorns pierced into his forehead. Nails driven into his, his wrists and his ankles. His ankles, they pierced my hands and my feet, Psalm 22. His body violently jerked into the ground so all his bones are out of joint, Psalm 22. Nails scraping into him as he tries to push up and breathe. He's experiencing all kinds of physical agony. And yet he never raised his voice about this. And he also doesn't cry out, my friends, my friends. Even though everyone uh, who had been with him has now betrayed him uh, or denied him or deserted him. He's not referring to his psychological or relational suffering. How alone and abandoned he is. Uh, because uh, up to this moment, though, Yeshua has been uh, behaving with, with unbelievable calm. He's so poised. No matter how much physical or emotional or psychological suffering, Yeshua is completely in control. Never complains, always poised, doesn't raise his voice. So when here he starts to scream, this is something else. This is something way beyond physical suffering. Infinitely beyond torture. It makes torture look like a mosquito bite. What is this? It's not physical suffering. It's not psychological suffering. It's his infinite spiritual suffering. Because when darkness descended upon the land, when Yeshua hung on the cross, that is symbolic of what is happening to him spiritually. When the Bible describes eternal lostness. When the scriptures describe hell, much more often than even the metaphor of fire, the metaphor is used of outer darkness. So, for example, uh, darkness is is a metaphor for for hell and judgment throughout the scriptures. For example, Amos uh, 8, uh, verse 9. In that day declares the Lord, I'll make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I'll make that time like the morning for an only sun. Or Matthew twenty two eleven, uh, from the parable, when the king came into the his inn and he saw the, this guest, uh, he he noticed a man there without wedding clothes. How did you get in here without wedding clothes? Uh, tie him up, or throw him outside into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
And then if we read them here in Matthew 27, 45, the darkness descended over the entire land is a symbol of God's judgment over the entire human race. For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So darkness is, is a metaphor for hell, for being cast out of God's presence. Because the presence of God is something that our hearts and our souls desperately need. Like a flower needs sunshine. You know, if the sun suddenly went out, we would all be dead within a day. You cannot survive without the sun. So when Yeshua says, my God, my God, not my head, my head, uh, my hands, my hands, my, my, my friends, my friends. No, my God, my God, you've forsaken me. What it means is that he is being plunged. His soul is being plunged into absolute darkness, absolute spiritual darkness. He's beginning to unravel. He's going down into utter spiritual destruction. Now remember, neither heaven nor hell exists in time. There are spiritual conditions of either being in God's presence or being utterly thrust away from the majesty and glory of God. And that means there's no such thing as as three hours uh, in heaven or, or three years in heaven. And the same is true for hell. So what Yeshua is experiencing on the cross was an eternity in hell. It wasn't like he was saying, oh, if I can only hold on for three more hours. No, he was experiencing utter eternal lostness. He was experiencing all the infinite sufferings of anyone or everyone who who was eternally cast out uh, or who deserved to be so. Yeshua is experiencing an eternity of suffering on the cross. And an infinity of hells compressed upon him. It's unfathomable. And yet at the same time, notice this. He's still saying, my God, my God. He's still saying, uh, uh, I, I, I love you, my father. No, uh, I've lost you, father, but you're still my God, my God. Notice his language here. Uh, it's the language of intimacy. You know, if I say, my Elizabeth or, or my Rachel, you know, I'm talking about a deep, intimate relationship. You know, you say that for, for your wife or your child. So when Yeshua cries, my God, my God, uh, uh, I've lost my God. See how intimate that is. See the, the intimacy of that. No one has ever done what he's doing. No one has ever cast away from God's sight as he was while he's still saying, Father, I love you. I want you. I obey you. No one has ever been cast out like that. And think about this. There's no greater agony in life than to lose love. Now, if your friend rejects you, that's terrible. If your spouse rejects you, that's probably the most traumatic rejection a human being can experience in this life. Because the level of the relationship determines how devastating it is. If your friend rejects you, you can get over it. If your spouse rejects you, uh, it's much, much harder to ever get over it. But this is something else. When the father forsakes Yeshua. This is infinitely greater. No wife has ever been so one with her husband. No child has ever been so one with his parent. 
No soul has ever been so one with his body as the Son was with the Father from all eternity. John 1.18, the Son was in the bosom with the Father from all eternity. So therefore, when the Father bars the door, when the Father turns his back on his Son and he casts him out, whatever Yeshua experienced would have been infinitely greater than all the hells of everyone who ever deserved to go to hell. All put together. And that's why he screamed. This is, that's why this is infinitely beyond everything he was ever experiencing before. That's the reference to the word, my God, my God. Yeshua lost his relationship with his father. But yet he remained perfectly obedient the whole time. Notice that by saying, my God, my God, Yeshua is using covenant language. He remains obedient to the Father. My God is a covenant term. And up till now, for, for, uh, for every person in the world, if you've been obedient to God, uh, if you're with God, he'll be with you. But when Yeshua obeyed the Father, he nonetheless was abandoned. He obeyed, and yet he was cursed. And yet in the midst of this, he still continues to obey and continues to love his Father God. And what that means is, is he's, he's, he is experiencing infinite suffering. But why? Why? That's the question. It's a why question. They'll put this on the overhead. Why was he forsaken? You know what the answer is? This is not just some cry of dereliction. My, my God, my God, you've forsaken me. But as I said before, it's a quote from the scriptures. And this contains the answer to this question. Yeshua is quoting the first verse of Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 goes like this. Part of it goes like this. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? I am a worm, not a man. I'm scorned by everyone. Uh, despised by the people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord save him, rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions, uh, they tear at their prey. Uh, they open their mouths against me. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It's melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. Uh, my tongue cleaves to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are out of joint. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothing among them and cast lots for my garments. But as I said, by quoting verse 1, Yeshua would have been referring to this entire psalm. And his audience would know this because they would have memorized the Psalms. Uh, and all of these associations that I just read would have immediately flooded into their minds. Now, I want to pause here for a moment. I want us to note uh, an issue involved, involving Psalm 22, verse 16. Uh, because the anti-missionaries, if you ever come across them, they will try to claim that we Yeshua followers have changed the Bible. Uh, it has to actually do with what's called a textual variant uh, in the reading of different manuscripts. 
the Jewish Bibles, following the Masoretic text, has the Hebrew word akari, which means like a lion. So the text in the Masoretic text actually reads in 20, for Psalm 22, verse 16, like a lion, my hands and my feet. However, every other Bible translation in the world, whether it's NASB or King James or NIV, uh, NET, NEB, Revised Standard Version, English Version, Tree of Life, Complete Jewish Bible, they all have the word karu, they pierced. So the text reads, they pierced my hands and my feet. I'll put this on the overhead. I'm trying to draw the difference here, but, but by bad drawing, <laughs> the Hebrew. The only difference you'll see is one Hebrew letter at every end of the word. The letter Yud uh, versus the letter Vav at the end of this word. It's the only difference. Now, let me say, first of all, contrary to these outrageous claims of the anti-missionaries, Yeshua followers did not change the text uh, to make it somehow fit the crucifixion. No one changed the text. We simply have a conflict between variant manuscript readings. Uh, that that's, seems to be what is commonly called a scribal error. The letters Vav and the letters Yud look alike. Here they are in the overhead. look somewhat alike. And in fact, one of the most common of all scribal errors in Hebrew is the transposing or the transforming of the letters Yud and Vav. It comes up all the time in, in textual criticism. This particular error can occur in, in two ways. The little Yud can change to, to a longer Vav, or the Vav can shorten itself into a Yud. Now, when a Vav changes to a Yud, it becomes longer, that's usually because, uh, I'm sorry, when a vav has changed into a yud and becomes shorter, it's usually because part of the, of the ink has come off the page, or a flake of parchment has peeled off. And where there was once a long vav, originally, all that's left now looks like a yud. Uh, or maybe the scribe was sloppy, as yuds and vavs aren't always easily distinguishable, particularly with the, the calligraphy of, of the Torah scroll. Indeed, this, as I said, is one of the most common scribal errors or textual corruptions due to a flaking ink or parchment. So it's easy to see how a long vav, like in Karu, they pierced, could have easily been corrupted and become a yud and it turned, it turned into kari uh, like a lion. But the opposite is not so easy to happen. The only way a yud can somehow grow a tail and become a vav is through a sloppy writer. The ink fading or peeling or parchment being worn away can never increase the length of the yud and turn it into a vav. So kari, like a lion with the yud, accidentally somehow becoming karu, they pierced with a vav, it's much less likely. So it's much less likely that, that the text started out kari, like a lion. So this argues strongly in favor of the original text being karu with a vav, they pierced my hands and my feet. But let's go further. The Masvidic text we have today, which reads like a lion, Kari, it was only produced in the Middle Ages. The text we have today dates only from the Middle Ages. Relatively speaking, that's not very old for a text. And unlike how it's done today, the Masoretes didn't collect all the oldest known scrolls, all the oldest known Hebrew manuscripts, and make what we call a critical edition, which is recording all the variant readings and then using rules of textual criticism to determine the best reading, and then preserving all the variant readings down in footnotes. That's what scholars do today. But they did not do that. Instead, what they did is they collected whatever manuscripts were most accessible at the time, they standardized it into one authorized text, 
And then they stopped producing and even destroyed or buried all the other texts that did not agree. The goal was to make one official Masoretic text as the only surviving text. Now, they were not 100% successful because a number of variant texts nonetheless survived. In fact, in the Biblical Hebraica, it records five Hebrew manuscripts from the Middle Ages that actually read, Karu, they pierced my hands and my feet, in the Masoretic text. And of course, we have other versions of the Tanakh, of the Hebrew scriptures, that are actually much older than the Masoretic text. So for example, in the Septuagint, which is the rabbinically approved Greek translation of the Tanakh, dating 150 to 200 years before the time of Yeshua, it reads, they pierced my hands and my feet. We also had the Dead Sea Scrolls, Hebrew manuscripts from Qumran, long predating Yeshua. They read, Karu, they pierced my hands and my feet. And we have the Aramaic Peshitta text, very old Jewish text of the Tanakh. It reads, they pierced my hands and my feet. Now, note that of the, of the Masoretic text, the Septuagint, the Peshitta, and the Dead Sea Scrolls, only the Masoretic text reads, like a lion, my hands and feet. All the rest read, they pierced my hands and my feet. And as I said, even some of the Masoretic texts actually read, they pierced. And all these other sources, the Septuagint, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Peshitta, they all long predate the Masoretic text. Secondly, the Masoretic version arguably, arguably makes little sense the way it reads. Like a lion, my hands and my feet. It's not even clear what that means. There's no verb in the sentence. Uh, it's unclear what it means, how it even fits in the context of the rest of Psalm 22. And that's why all the Jewish versions are forced to add in extra words in brackets or in italics that aren't actually in the Hebrew text. And we'll put a few examples in the overhead. So, for example, a common version adds the phrase, they are not. So it reads, like a lion, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry adds, adds in, they are at. So the short reads now, like a lion, they are at my hands and my feet. They are at was added in. The JPS, the Jewish Publication Society, adds in the words, they maul. Like a lion, they maul my hands and my feet. The Stones edition of the Tanakh reads, the prey of. So it now reads, like the prey of a lion are my hands and my feet. So the Masoretic text by itself makes little sense. So the editors add in all these extra words. But all the other texts, which reads, they pierced my hands and my feet, make perfect sense by themselves. Nothing needs to be added, and they fit the overall context of Psalm 22. So the only reason to insist reading it like a lie in my hands and my feet is to desperately not want this passage to be clearly talking about Yeshua and the crucifixion. But God has a sense of humor. Because even the Masoretic text version actually describes the crucifixion of Messiah whether they realize it or not. Because think about what the Masoretic version is really picturing. Put on the overhead. Like a lion, they're at my hands and my feet. What is the picture? Does this mean they're kissing my hands and my feet? Or they're massaging my hands and my feet? I don't think so. No, it means what? Put this on the overhead. They're ripping, uh, they're tearing his hands and the feet. Rashi, the famous Jewish medieval commentator, says it means they're mauling his hands and feet. They're ripping holes in them. To me, that's just as powerful a picture of the crucifixion as they pierced my hands and feet. 
Like a lion, they're at my hands and my feet with big claws of a lion ripping holes in my hands and my feet. Even as Yeshua's hands were pierced with the nails and his feet. Even so, the reading like a lion actually, unbeknownst to them, paints a vivid and powerful and accurate description of the crucifixion. And of course, the rest of Psalm 22 also describes the crucifixion. Uh, verse 7, uh, like a worm, the sexual Hebrew word for worm refers to a, a worm that's crushed to make red dye to look like blood, a symbol of, of the uh, blood on, uh, on the tabernacle. And, uh, verse 7, they despised, the shoe was despised and rejected. Verse 8, they mocked him. Uh, verse 12, they, he's abandoned by all. Verse 13, the bulls of Bashan, this is a reference to the Edomites and King Herod. Uh, verse 6, 15, uh, is, and, and 16 is a medically accurate description of death by crucifixion. My bones were out of joint, just like on the cross. Uh, he's poured out like water. In, in crucifixion, your, your lungs fill with water. You actually die of, suffoca- of suffocation in your own fluids. Uh, my heart is like wax. You also die of a crucifixion of a ruptured heart. The tongue cleaves to the roof of my mouth. You have incredible thirst. Verse 18, they count all my bones. Not a single bone of his was broken. Because he's the Passover lamb, fulfilling the laws of Passover. Verse 19, they cast lots for my clothing. The Romans cast lot the Yeshua's garment instead of cutting it up. The Torah says the high priest cannot tear his clothes. Yeshua is our high priest. His clothes were not torn. Every aspect of Psalm 22 is fulfilled by Yeshua on the cross. And it ends with these verses. Look at Psalm 22 beginning in verse 22. I'll put this on the overhead. Future generations will be told this. He's not despised the suffering of his, of his afflicted one. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow before him. Future generations will proclaim his salvation to a people yet unborn. For he has done it. It is finished. Hallelujah. <laughs> now this is the Psalm of David, Psalm 22. But the events described here never happened to King David. His hands and feet weren't pierced. They didn't cast lots for his garments. Psalm 22 describes a crucifixion. He wasn't crucified. This is a prophetic psalm. It's talking about the greater King David. Mashiach ben David. Messiah. David is the Yeshua the, the Messiah. Ben David, the son of David. And Yeshua on the cross, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's now saying two things. We'll put this on the overhead as well. He's saying, number one, I am suffering infinitely. But number two, he's saying, though God is damning me, I'm sticking with the plan. Though God is damning me, I'm holding on to his word. Though God is condemning me and casting me out, I am holding on. There's something he's doing. That's what Psalms 22 is saying. There's something he's accomplishing. And, in whole, I, and, and I'm holding on to the very end. What is he doing? What is the passion of Messiah? Why is he forsaken? It is for us. It is for you and for you and for me. We are his passion. In the full sense of the word, you and I, we are his passion. We're what and who he's dying for. 
We are what he's infinitely suffering for. He's not just suffering, he's suffering for us. Because we're his passion, we're his love. You should know, he was already glorified with the Father for all eternity. So what does he possibly have to gain by coming to earth and suffering that he already didn't have before in heaven? Only one thing, you and me. He gained us as his people, as his bride. And that's why he did it. When he says, my God, my God, you're forsaken. Why are you forsaking me? He's not just uttering it. He's living in the fulfillment of Psalm 22. He's saying on the one hand, I'm being utterly forsaken. But on the other hand, he's saying, I am doing this for a reason. I am doing this for a purpose. Go to the place in the famous novel, Moby Dick, where Captain Ahab is being dragged to the bottom of the sea. And he cries out to Moby Dick, this great white whale, from hell's heart I stab at thee. Great rhetoric, great writing. But Captain Ahab really wasn't going to hell. But on the cross, Yeshua literally, truly was in hell's heart. And what does he say? From hell's heart, I love you, Father. Though you slay me, yet I will praise you. This is the most perfect obedience ever. From hell's heart, I love you, Father. From hell's heart, I love you, humankind. That's what he's saying when he quotes Psalm 22. From hell's heart, I am holding on. I am loving all of you because you are his passion. And this cry from the cross shows he is willing to take on infinite suffering in perfect obedience to the Father. In obedience to God's plan, out of his infinite love for you. And there is no greater revelation of the passion of Messiah than these words. And just overhead again, we'll put this. That is what the cross means. The passion. In the full biblical sense of the word passion. The execution state, the cross means Yeshua is willing to take on infinite suffering out of infinite love for you and your obedience to God's plan in order to redeem you and give you his life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This verse is saying that God God the Father put our sins on Yeshua so that he died the death that we should have died. And God put Yeshua's righteousness on us because he lived the life that we should have lived. So that if you repent and if you turn and trust in Yeshua, you are now clothed with his righteousness. So that uh, if you surrender your life to him, number one, your sins are forgiven. And number two, his righteousness is now put upon you. Yeshua is taking on our suffering the suffering and judgment that we deserve because we constantly rebel against God, don't we? And against his laws, and we do our own thing. We constantly break the two greatest commandments, uh, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. We constantly break these two greatest commandments. Why? Because we don't love God with all of our heart, mind, 
soul, and strength. And we don't love our neighbor as ourself. So we are all in sin and we all deserve his judgment. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. The issue of the Messiah, our Lord. But we resist this notion that we resist the notion that we're guilty or that we deserve judgment. Because in our postmodern, secular society, we're told not to let anything or anyone ever make you feel guilty. Because guilt is a bad thing, we're told. You have to decide what's right or wrong for you. That's what it means to have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You decide now what's good and what's evil. Our secular society says there's no such thing as objective truth or morality. It's all relativistic and subjective. Why? Because you are the center of your universe. There is no God, or at least no God of the Bible. There's only the God that we make up in our own minds. And the funny thing about this God is that he always happens to agree with me. (laughs) Because in essence, he is me. He's just a figment of my imagination. Because I've rejected the real God, the God of the Bible. And so we now live in a society where guilt has been outlawed. Everyone is their own God and decides their own morality and does what they want. Everyone today sins openly and brazenly and everyone is shameless. Because they've rejected the God of the Bible, their only true God. And because of this, their thinking has become futile and their foolish hearts darkened. They no longer are capable of feeling guilt, which is probably the greatest pathological disorder of all, the inability anymore to feel guilt. There's a secular scholar at um, Columbia, Andrew Belbanco, who wrote a book on American culture recently. In the book, he discusses another book, his novel by Percy Walker, Love in the Ruins. And in this novel, I've mentioned this once before, but we may not have been here. In this novel, there's a psychologist, Max, who says the essence of of, of being human and being enlightened is to live without guilt, Uh, to do what you want, and to never feel guilty about it. And a client comes to see the psychologist, client Tom, who just had an affair, and he's now worried. Uh, And Max, the psychologist, is having trouble understanding Tom. So this is their dialogue. Max says, Tom, I don't understand what worries you about the affair if you don't feel guilty. Tom, That's what's worrying me. I don't feel guilty. Max, well, there is no guilt after your affair. What's your problem? Tom, it means you don't have life in you. And then Andrew Del Banco says this. I'll put this in the overhead. What the psychologist doesn't understand is that the guilt that Tom no longer feels had been his last reassurance that there existed something in the world that transcended him. This is brilliant. Here's what the secular scholar, Del Banco, is saying. He's saying, I'll put this on the overhead. He's saying, nothing should make me feel guilty. I have to decide what's right or wrong for me. And when you say that, what you mean then is there's nothing more important in the universe than your feelings, your conscience, your needs, your intuition. That's all that matters. There's nothing more important than you. There's nothing you have to sacrifice for or to serve Whatever, feel guilty over if you fail. Because you're the center of your universe. And there's nothing more important than you. Nothing transcends you. 
That's basically what you're saying. Let me put this on the overhead. But if there is no guilt, there is no hope. Because you've got nothing to live for and nothing to die for. And again, in the overhead, if there is no guilt, there's no hope because there's nothing in this universe that transcends you and your own subjective feelings. And as a society, that's where we are right now. But the Bible says there is truth. There is right and wrong. And therefore, there's hope. And also guilt. There is something more important than you. And it's God. And you're supposed to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because he gave you everything. You're supposed to love your neighbor as yourself. But you're not. And I'm not. And therefore, there's guilt. And the dark clouds of God's judgment lie over the whole land. They descend over the land. That's why Yeshua was forsaken. Because the punishment that we deserve was coming down on him. He took your guilt and your punishment on himself. So that you might have his righteousness. If you turn from your sin. And you turn from yourself. And you turn to him. And put your faith in him. And follow him. And if you've never done that. You can do that right now. And if you've already, or a believer, and you're already following him, then Yeshua calls you today to deny yourself uh, and to take up your cross and to follow him uh, and to reach out and share your faith with the lost, and especially the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And thereby join with Yeshua in fulfilling his great commission. I want JB to come up here and close now with a call to action in light of Yeshua's finished work on the cross. For us to be doers of his word and not hearers only. Amen. Amen. JB, come on up.